1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And with that, Paul begins to answer the next question. Now you recall there are several questions sent by the church at Corinth to Paul that he's responding to in this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, but it's probably 2 Corinthians because he probably already wrote them a letter which they responded to, and now he's responding once again to them. And he's answering their questions, and so he says in the Greek, peri day, that phrase, now concerning, he'll speak a couple more times, I believe, after this, in response to questions they bring up. And he is taking up the next Corinthian question. Based on his response over the next three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, they probably asked him something about spiritual powers or abilities. Because that's what he's going to deal with. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Along with this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I don't want you to be unaware of, and he goes on to describe the rapture of the church. Romans 11, I do not want you to be unaware of Israel and God's plan. And here, I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual. Now, your Bibles probably add the word gifts, but it's not actually there. You see it in italics, that's because it's not there. I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual, for now we'll say spiritual things. I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual things, specifically... The real issue, the the standout, and we know this because he deals with it many times over this chapter in chapter 14, tongues. Speaking in tongues. Praying in the Spirit, as he'll call it in chapter 14. He's going to deal with the issue at length when we get to chapter 14. It Really, he kind of just brushes by it in chapter 12. He corrects us in chapter 13 as to where our hearts ought to be. And then in chapter 14, he gets back into talking about it and responding to them and explaining things. In fact, if you came tonight thinking, hey, we're in 1 Corinthians 12, so we're going to get hyper-spiritual. Please understand that we're going to be explaining and understanding and reasoning through what the Scriptures teach about these things. In previous ministry situations, I might have skipped right on by this because there are so many different perspectives and views on spiritual things, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, all of these issues. But the Holy Spirit Himself, through the Apostle Paul, goes straight to the heart. And He begins to answer the right question. It doesn't really matter what the question was coming out of Corinth. He begins to answer the right question. And I think that question is, what does it really mean to be spiritual? What is spirituality all about? That adjective there, spiritual, now concerning spiritual, and they add gifts, brethren. The adjective spiritual is pneumatikos. Pneumatikos, which in the masculine form means would mean be translated spiritual people. Now concerning spiritual people or spiritual men. Pneumatikos in the neuter form, which is what we believe it is here, is actually spiritual things, for lack of a better uh, translation. Now concerning spiritual things. I think there is a better translation. And we'll get to it in just a minute. 
But people tend to go to at least one of two extremes, maybe some others, but at least two that I, I, I think through regarding spirituals. Spiritual things. Either they take a mystical, esoteric view. Ooh, the spiritual. And in taking that view, they're either positive, it's thrilling to some, but it's unnerving to others. So if your perspective is that spiritual things is this, uh, you know, otherworldly, strange, mystical thing, then you are either excited by that, as I've seen among brothers and sisters in the church, or you're scared of it. You really don't want that aspect of it. Straight rows, straight backs, looking forward, don't mess with me, man. Well, that's if you take a mystical view. The other view is an ironically tangible, natural view. It's a view of spiritual things in the church that tends to deny the supernatural. I could describe it easily by referring to Buddha. See, there are those who would say Buddha was a very spiritual man. Buddhism and and, and Buddhist philosophy and all of that in and of itself is purported to be a, a spiritual type thing, and yet the whole thing is on you. Enlightenment is up to you. Well, that's natural. That's the flesh. That's me learning how to dial myself down and how to control things and how to uh, manage my mind and manage my spirit. And it's all me doing it. The monks who for years and years will live up in a monastery practicing Buddhist principles and trying to bring enlightenment. Man, that's hard work. So it's natural. It's not even really spiritual because it's all about what you can accomplish in your mind and with your mindset. Spirituality in Christianity is completely different than any other perspective, any other world religion, any other teachings or ideas. Listen, understand, spirituality is not about you, man. It's not about you, woman. Spirituality begins and ends with the Holy Spirit of the living God. If I am to be spiritual, it's because He brings it. Now, yes, I have a spirit. I have a spirit man. My eternal self, the, the, the person that I really am. And in that I connect with and I understand and I, I learn to hear God and, and to relate to God and to be influenced by God and to, to uh, submit to Him. But it's His work that makes me spiritual. It is what He accomplishes. And Jesus came, setting aside glory, came from the heavens to earth, walked among us in human flesh to show us exactly how this works. And Isaiah told us how it would. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, all from the one Spirit residing on Jesus. Now, it happens to be His Spirit. But He shows us how this works, that in the flesh, we are fleshly to become a spiritual people. We need the Spirit of the living God. And you know, Paul writes about this, talks about this in Galatians 5, verse 22, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, where the Spirit is residing in a person's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you can see, actually recognize, perhaps that the Spirit is active and is at work in somebody's life by the fruit that they bear. However, 
Fruit can also be artificial, can't it? You ever bite down on one of those plastic apples? It hurts. I've actually done that. I thought it was an apple and didn't realize until... Fruit can be artificial, synthetic, plastic. When measured with eyes of flesh... And the non-spiritual person, listen, can act out love. The non-spiritual person can mimic joy. They can pretend peace. And I would submit to you, and you might disagree with me on this, but I would submit to you that outside of the Spirit of God living and indwelling in a person's life, that all other forms of spirituality are synthetic. They're not real. They only mimic that which is real. And so, verse 2, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, after he says this, he says, says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Well, that's synthetic spirituality. That's fruit basket spirituality, but the fruit is plastic. Paganism was the worship of things that were not real, driven by demons that are real. And so synthetic, not actual. Remember that many of these folks at Corinth are fresh out of paganism. I mean, if the church is, as we think, about five years old at the writing of this letter, that means the oldest Christian in the bunch would be five. It's a pretty young faith at that point. Oh, not that you can't grow by leaps and bounds, but when you are fresh out of an entire culture of paganism, of a false spirituality, no wonder they want to know what it means. To understand spiritual things. Because what they knew before was pagan and was false and was not actual. And so Paul now, he deftly sets their former counterfeit experience over against their present authentic experience in Jesus Christ. Understand as we go through these three chapters, Paul is now explaining to them not how to speak in tongues. And we're going to talk about that because Paul does. That's not the point of these three chapters. It's to set them apart in understanding what true spiritual living is as opposed to what they had known all of their lives, what they had experienced as pagan people in synthetic fruit baskets. To be a people who understood spirituality. Verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now that seems kind of out of left field, Paul. It's not. He's laying a foundation. And he's saying, in essence, you cannot fake the confession that comes from the fear of the Lord. Let me say that again. You cannot fake the confession of Jesus as Lord that comes from the fear of the Lord. What do you mean, Rick? I mean back when Isaiah prophesied that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, of those six things, the first five you can fake. Number six you cannot. You can't fake the the, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that awesome reverence, That recognizing Jesus Christ for who He is. God the Father in His majesty and might. That fear that says I would rather please Him and be hated by all mankind. I would rather fear Him than try to please mankind. 
So the fear of the Lord, it does something in us. And you cannot mimic and you cannot parrot the fear of the Lord. There's a deep reverence for the Lordship of Jesus when one is speaking by the Spirit. Which is why Paul says you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. He's not talking about someone just blurting out the statement. He's talking about speaking it as a matter of faith. You don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord. You don't say Jesus is the Lord and the authority of my life except by His own Spirit. That's where your motivation, your influence, the power to even speak those words comes from. The Holy Spirit. At the same time, you cannot, by the Spirit of God, say Jesus is accursed. Meaning? Meaning you are not a born-again follower of Jesus if those words pass your lips. This is very serious. Now more on verse 3 in just a minute, but understand this. You can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And that is, I believe, the better translation of pneumatikos. Now concerning spiritual things, okay. Now concerning uh, spiritual people, alright. I think it's better. Now concerning that which is of the Spirit. Because this is all Paul is going to be talking about. That which is of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the source of all true spiritual things. He is the source of all true spiritual people. The Spirit is the source. That which comes from, belongs to, is orchestrated by the Spirit. Now concerning these things, Paul writes. And please get this down before we go another verse further. Spiritual gifts, so-called, are not the focus. Neither is the focus on the spiritual getters. The focus is on the spiritual giver, the Holy Spirit Himself. He is the focus. He is the issue. As Les said today as we were praying through some of these things, all the rest is secondary. But we in the church sometimes take all the rest and make it primary. And ultimately get around to the Holy Spirit. But man, I want the gifts. I want the stuff. I want the things. Why would you want the things when you can have the person? And Paul is laying this out because what have they been used to? Pagans, they've been used to things. They've been used to experiences. Trumped up, not real. Trumped up. (laughs) Things. But God said through the prophet Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I love that. He doesn't say I'm going to pour out all kinds of neat tricks. I'm going to pour out exciting things. He says, I'm going to give you my spirit. And yet I truly wonder if some wouldn't rather have the things, the fun. The Lord wants to give you, to give me, that which is of His Spirit. Now, you can note this in verse 4. He's going to go on and talk about the varieties of gifts. And he uses the word gifts there. That's a different word than pneumotikos. The word for gifts is charisma. It's charis, which is grace. But it's grace given. So charisma, literally translated, is a free gift. 
or a gift of grace. And absolutely, don't misunderstand me, there are gifts. There are powers. There are abilities. There are ministries. There are effects. The Lord gives these things. As Paul will very clearly describe to his people for very specific reasons. And we're going to seek to understand that. Paul even said back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What they needed when Paul planted Corinth was to see that he was under the authority of the Spirit of Jesus. That it wasn't just words that sounded wise and impressive. It's, it was actual actions. It was, it was healings. It was miracles. It was evidence that they saw that this man has been touched by God and is now being used by God. So the powers are, are legit. Well, that was the first century. Yeah, of the church age, of which we are still a part. And you would have to show me somewhere in Scripture that says... All that stuff dialed down with the last of the apostles. There are some who teach that. I believed it much of my growing up life. After Paul, you know, after John, I mean, he was there into the 90s, but even John, it had to be dying out because, you know, I mean, dude was exiled on Patmos. Clearly, he wasn't as empowered as he was maybe early on. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches that we are in the last days that began in the first century and we are currently, I believe, at the tail end of them. And in the last days, Joel chapter 2 says, I will pour forth of my spirit. Now, we can debate and argue that, and people in church do, but I would encourage all to go back to the Word of God and don't listen to what Pastor Rick says or anyone else. You listen to what the Word of God teaches. And you listen to what God said about these times in which we live. So these things are legit. The powers, the gifts, the anointings. But the emphasis of the pneuma tikos is the pneuma. The Spirit. The Spirit of the living God. And honestly, to attempt to be a spiritual people engaged in spiritual things while denying the Spirit of God is like being, well... A pagan. How many pagan churches do we have? Pagan spirituality is by nature selfish and self-centered and self-generating. It's the church that is all about the strategies and all about the works and all about what the people can pull together and how they can use their minds to make things happen as opposed to waiting on the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what has Paul been dealing with across the first 11 chapters of this letter to the church at Corinth? Think back. Divisions, sexual immorality, lawsuits, marriages that are in trouble, idolatry, Hellenistic cultural influences and paganism, idolatry again, culminating in chapter 11, the abuse of the body of Christ at the table of the Lord. It all kind of comes to a head at that point. And as we talked about on Sunday, Paul was incensed that they would so treat the body of Christ. But he's not now finished with that and moving on 
That's past tense. We're on to the next thing. The flow of this letter is perfect because the flow of this letter is inspired by the Spirit. He knows exactly what he's doing. And as we've been studying studying through, one thing leads right into the next, leads right into the next. And he is building this up as we go forward. And at this point, it should be obvious that Paul, let's say the Spirit's number one concern was the abuse, intended or not, of the body. The abuse of the body. Whether it was in divisions, dividing up among who they wanted to follow, or sexual immorality, or the lawsuits, or all the rest of it. Abuse was taking place in the body of Christ at Corinth. And Paul's dealing with that. So even as he's going forward to talk about the Spirit, it is still with reference to the body, to the body functioning as a body is supposed to function. Are you with me? Okay. By the way, what is the greatest proof that a person is being led of the Spirit of God? What is the number one proof where you can look at a person and say, they are filled with the Holy Spirit? I'll give it to you in a word. In fact, I'll give you a hint first. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, sandwich the proof. It's love. It is love. It is not the ability to heal. It is not the ability to raise the dead. It is not the prophetic word. It is not a word of wisdom. It is not speaking in tongues. It is love. The most spirit-filled man who ever walked the face of the earth was Jesus Christ, and greater love had no man than His. It's love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.1, If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love... I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So the whole letter now is a call to love in the body of Christ. And if we don't finish this letter with a very strong sense of unity, love, affection, and concern for one another because of what we've learned, we will have missed the whole thing. What does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Paul is now going to deal with what it means to be of the Spirit and to be of The Spirit is to be a unified body. And he makes that point very clear. He begins with this potent spiritual truth, however. Look at verse 3 one more time. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Can you here tonight say Jesus is Lord? Let me hear you say it. You know what you just did? You just gave a divine utterance. You just spoke as inspired by the Spirit of God. Well, I just said words. Did you believe them? If you believe them, you spoke by the Holy Spirit. You can't say it unless He is motivating you to do so. That's part of the deal. You can only make that true confession if the Spirit of Christ is in you. Do you wonder if the Spirit of Christ is present in you sometimes? You want to you double check? Just say Jesus is Lord and you know He's there. It's beautiful. Now in the Corinthian context, it is believed by some who have studied these things that the name of Jesus was already being cursed in the pagan temples in Corinth. 
That that is why Paul brings this up. After mentioning that you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, it was bogus, it was empty spirituality, it was synthetic, it was plastic, it was not real. And by the way, if someone's saying Jesus is cursed, you don't have to worry about whether or not they have the Spirit of God. They don't. Because you can't say that. You can't make that kind of statement. Jesus is cursed. Can you even imagine? You might say, well, Rick, you just said it. I understand. You can't say it and mean it. By the Spirit of God. Why would God do something so horrible as to send His Son to have Him brutally crucified on a cross and then to have people be able to say that? Now, why is that an issue, Rick? Well, because... We think, again, in the context that people in Corinth were getting rattled by some of the use of spiritual gifts and were uncertain about those who were praying in tongues, speaking in tongues, worried about this, and fearful that perhaps if they're speaking in tongues and you don't know what they're saying, they're actually cursing Jesus. And Paul says, that's not possible. Can't do it. Not if you have the Spirit of the living God. But there's more than that. To declare the Lordship of Jesus in that culture, in Corinth, was a radical confession of absolute allegiance to Christ Jesus as your deity. He is now your deity. And by the way, it still is a radical confession today. I kind of feel like it's getting more and more radical as the days wind down. Just to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my King. He is my authority. He is my deity. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Note that picture. What a powerful picture. To gather is to bring together. To gather is to unify. If you're with Jesus, you want to bring together and unify people under the banner of Jesus Christ. But if you are against Him, you want to scatter. Which is why there's no room in the body of Christ for a divisive person. Because if you're with Jesus, you are not about scattering. And he says, therefore, Matthew 12, 31, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And that freaks people out. What does that mean? Blasphemy against the Spirit. Well, the Pharisees had just told Jesus he had a demon. Listen, if we can't say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God, Jesus could not be Lord but by the Spirit of God. Right? Which is His own Spirit. Therefore, the Spirit is the Lord. You understand? And here He is, God in the flesh, God present, and there were Jewish leaders who had the audacity to say, you have a demon. And Jesus says, you're on the line of the unforgivable. I love that in grace He gives it even then as a warning. He doesn't turn to the Pharisees and say, you just blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're going straight to hell. (laughs) Bye-bye. Clean out your locker, bud, you're done. No. He says, look, watch it. You make a statement like that? You blaspheme that which is divine? Speaking of Himself. Blaspheme the Spirit? Speaking of who He was, what He bore in and of Himself? You cannot be forgiven. People ask, well, why not? It's the one unforgivable sin. Recognize that every other sin is forgivable. 
There's not a single one that God cannot forgive but that one. Why? Because that comes from a heart that is turned completely against God. From a heart that has crossed the point of no return, no repentance. A person who says, I am done with God, I am riding off God, and I will not return to God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because that person will never again seek the repentance that brings about salvation. And so Paul, he's making it clear here, you cannot blaspheme the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you cannot say Jesus is cursed. You can only say Jesus is Lord. And that confession of Christ, again, only comes by His Holy Spirit residing within you. And I find that wonderfully comforting. Every now and then, it's good. Just say it. Jesus is Lord. And it just feels good to say. And it comforts me in knowing that even by saying that, He's right here. So you see what Paul is doing. He is making this about the Spirit. Not about how to be a spiritual person. You want to be spiritual? You need to know the Spirit of God. You need to engage in the Spirit. Focus on the Spirit. And it begins with confessing Jesus. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said, John 15.26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me, which is how you know to say Jesus is Lord. Because He told you to. He testified to your spirit that Jesus is in fact Lord. Jesus said in John 16, 14, He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So again, to speak the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a divine utterance. Paul makes that very clear right here at the beginning. Now, before we go on, if you have a background where you might consider yourself a bit shaky on the Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit makes you uncomfortable. Or maybe, like me, you come from a background of cessationism where the Spirit is not actively at work. That's what I grew up believing, thinking. Maybe you've seen things. You've seen abuses. You've seen, in the name of the Spirit of God, people barking. It's happened. Not by the Spirit. I think it's basically by the spirit of Alpo. Just saying. There's weird stuff out there. There are weird interpretations or ideas and and things sometimes that are blamed on the Spirit that are not of the Spirit. And so perhaps you're among those people who are uncomfortable with healings. You'll pray for healings, but but if it actually happens, you thank the doctor. (laughs) Or, Or you're uncomfortable with miracles and even asking for them. Or prophecy. Is that a word of prophecy or did that guy just kind of make it up and he happened to be right? You know? Maybe tongues kind of freaks you out a little bit. Really, any of the spiritual things listed here between verses 8 and 10, specifically in chapter 12, if any of this bothers you, I want you to listen to Jesus. Listen. This is Luke eleven nine. I say to you, Jesus speaking, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, or keeps asking, is the Greek, receives. 
He who keeps seeking finds, and to him who keeps knocking, it will be open. And then Jesus says, now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Will he? I might as a practical joke, but not seriously. Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? And then Jesus says, and I believe it was so gently spoken, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And notice what He does not say. Jesus didn't say, how much more will your heavenly Father give spiritual things, gifts, powers, anointings to those who ask. Now understand, I believe He will give those things to those who ask. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus made it all about receiving the Spirit, not the spiritual things. Because it's always about the Spirit. Who does He give? Who does our Father want to give? And the question I would ask you tonight, wherever you stand on the issue of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does, is can you accept, can you receive the offer of your Father? And see, we we get out on a limb sometimes, or we feel like we're on a limb, and we're shaking and we're going to fall off because we're talking about weird Holy Spirit stuff, and I don't know how to deal with this, and I'm kind of frightened, and our Father's going, I'm right here. You're not going anywhere. Naomi climbed an apple tree down at City Beach a couple days ago. She got up too high and was not sure how to get down. Of course, I just walked away and said, deal with it yourself. (laughs) You're 11 now. Got to fall and break something, you'll learn. I was right there. Okay, honey, right there on that branch. Your foot can go. I'll catch you if you fall. Make your way down. I was there for her. Your father... Don't miss that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of our Father. Is the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, when we talk about the Spirit of God, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about our Heavenly Father. We have nothing to fear but the fear of the Lord. The only fear we need to have, and that's why I pray that, is the fear of the Lord. Don't fear the spiritual gifts. Don't fear speaking in tongues. Oh, what does that even mean? We'll talk about that. But don't fear these things. Don't worry about these things. These are from your Father who gives His Holy Spirit to those who ask. Back in chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but, note this, the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, that is, Jesus. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. Verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Listen, He is a good Father who is seeking the common good. That is the good of His people. He's not about to dump some bizarrity on you that just weirds you out. I was fine. I went to church this morning. They started talking about the Spirit. Next thing I knew, I was glued to the wall. He's not going to do something strange and odd and bizarre and and, and twisted. He's not going to offer up strange fire. That's not our Father. What does He say? He gives it for the common weird. 
or the common strange, or the common buzz. No, the common good. These things are for the common good. And by the way, let me give you this. Three things. I'm kind of, we're going to work our way slowly through some of this. But I want you to think of three questions, have three questions that you can ask any time that you are wondering, is this of the Spirit of God or not? Is this truly God or is this something else going on here? Three very simple questions that you can ask. Number one, is the Lordship of Jesus proclaimed? In the event, in the circumstance, in the power that is being manifested, is the Lordship of Jesus proclaimed? What's that? The Gospel. Is it about the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the saving power of Jesus, the Gospel that Paul says is for everyone, is that proclaimed? Question number one. Number two. In the event, the experience, and what's taking place, and it could be worship, it could be teaching, it could be a prayer fellowship, it could be something else, is Jesus honored and glorified in it? So not only is it proclaiming His Lordship, but does it glorify Him? That would be the glory. So the Gospel and the glory. If if the questions are too long, just think the Gospel and the glory. Is the Gospel proclaimed? Is the glory of Jesus seen? In what's taking place. And then number three, and this is vital to the work of the Spirit. Is it good for the body of Christ? Is it good for the body? Is it the common good? Gospel, glory, good. Got it? Is it the gospel? Is it the glorification of Jesus? And is it for the common good? There are some things that are for the individual good, but they are not for the common good. Some things that, as Jim Crouch loves to say, are good things, but they're not God things. It is always a God thing if it is for the common good of the body of Christ. And so those are three questions to ask. By the way, common good in verse 7. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I love the word in the Greek. This is one to jot down, be aware of. The word common good, one word is sumpheron. Sumphoron, symphony. It's where we get our word symphony. The common good, the common symphony. Now, sometimes we sound more like a, a screechy elementary school orchestra, uh, or maybe a junior high garage band, you know, is trying to pick our way through, play that funky music. That was m- what my junior high garage band played. Play that funky music. Baby, I Love Your Ways, and Taking Care of Business. Those were our three hits that we played out of the garage on weekends. And it sounded terrible. No, a symphony. Paul has just spoken. He's getting at something amazing here in referring to verse 4, the gifts, and verse 5, the ministries, and verse 6, the effects. He is talking about with all things, these come together by the work of the Spirit of God for the common good, for the symphony, composing the body harmoniously in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the Spirit at work. When the body is symphonic, when the body is harmonious, when the body sounds like a glorious orchestra playing out the love of God, the Holy Spirit is present and He is making these things happen. Now think about this though, with a symphony, a tuba and a violin are about as different as it gets. Rachel was sharing that during her music program up at Western, she actually had to go to a tuba concert. 
How many tubas? Ten? Ten tubas playing these songs. And she said, it was brutal. I mean, how many beer songs can you listen to, you know? But a tuba in an orchestra well played is part of the symphony. Completely different, again, than the little piccolo. Or the violin, the oboe and the timpani. Completely different instruments. The cello and the bass drum. They're not the same. But here's the concept of the common good. And Paul is going to unwrap this. The Spirit really will for us over three chapters here. And that is that the body is for unity, but not necessarily uniformity. I mean, Doug and I look very different. You know? He can grow a beard and mustache. Still has hair on his head. I have to be careful because I may kind of veer into covetousness. (laughs) Doug and I approach life differently, think about things differently, and yet when we come together around Jesus, there is a uniformity, not a uniformity, a unity of the two of us. But we are not uniform. The body of Christ does not lockstep. And that's marvelous, isn't it, how different we can be? It's diversity, but it's not division. So neither are we uniform in all things, nor are we divided up because we're so different. No, we are diverse and we are unified. It is what Paul called the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3 The common good. So how does this work? Okay, listen to the flow again in verses 4, 5, and 6. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Gifts, ministries, effects. Gifts are charisma. We already talked about that. The the gifts by grace, free gifts, charisma. Ministries are diakonia. It's where we get the word deacon. It's servings. Okay, so ministries are acts of, of service. And then effects is energma. It's where we get our word energy. Energma, which is uh, effects, operations, functionings. And Paul lists all three here in a row, gifts, ministries, and effects. And note this, how he connects each one. I think it's very interesting. Gifts are connected to the same one and same spirit. Ministries are tied to the one and same Lord, that is Jesus. For when Paul says, Lord, Kyrios, he's talking about Jesus. And then effects are linked to the same God. That's the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the working of the common good and these gifts, ministries, and effects, we see an early and surprisingly casual expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I don't even think Paul was thinking about it, to be honest. I think, you know, he, he was speaking and, and his, his penman was there writing these things out. And Paul is just saying, you know, there are gifts by the Spirit and there are ministries by the Lord and there are effects by the same God. And Paul had early on a true understanding that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he will later in later letters begin to unwrap this, God, this doctrine of the Trinity and explain it more specifically. And, of course, Jesus covered it beautifully in the Gospels. But right here, in this very early letter of Paul, he just kind of casually mentions it. Why do you say casual? Because he's not trying to make a Trinitarian point. 
He's not teaching a doctrine here. It's just kind of assumed that God is who God is. And so the Spirit brings gifts and the Lord Jesus brings ministries and the effects are worked by the same God, same Spirit, same Lord, same God, who is one and yet He is three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what He's saying is God is absolutely unified in effecting the common good of the body. But what He does, whether it's Father, Son, or Spirit, He does for the common good, for the symphony of the body. Now, I want to tell you something, and this is just Rick's opinion. You can disagree. Please don't do it out loud, Vicki. Is she here? <laughs> in my opinion, the list that we are going to come to in verses 8, 9, and 10 is not specifically a listing of spiritual gifts. Though this passage has always been the go-to to find out what is my spiritual gift. I want to understand my spiritual gift. I think if you want a list of spiritual gifts, you have to go back to Romans 12. So why don't we do that? Romans chapter 12. Now, Paul hasn't written Romans yet. We've studied it already, but as he's writing to the church at Corinth, he has not yet written to the church at Rome. That would come later. So Corinth actually came first, and then and then this letter to Rome. As he's writing, he says Romans 12, verse 6, very specifically, since we have gifts, charisma, that differ according to the grace, grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, that's a gift, according to the proportion of his faith, If service, that's a gift in serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching, there's a gift of teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation, the gift of exhortation, I love it. He who gives with liberality, giving is a gift in and of itself. And he who leads, leadership is in a gift with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a list that is representative of the type and quality of spiritual gifts that God gives. And it's interesting because He doesn't mention healings. He doesn't mention tongues. He doesn't mention miracles. He mentions prophecy, teaching, service, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. Those are the spiritual gifts. They're designed, they're spoken of as gifts. And remember, he wrote this after he wrote 1 Corinthians 12. Which he could have just cut and pasted and saved himself some time. Except that 1 Corinthians 12 is not specifically spiritual gifts. These are. And it's interesting to me, because reading through that list, that's a, that's a real different vibe, isn't it? You know, uh, who, who among us just prays for the gift of giving? Oh Lord, that I could give more. That that I could have the gift of giving. That I could just be so constantly giving. You don't hear people praying that one a lot. Now, perhaps you do. And if you do, praise God. The boxes are right there in the back wall. You can, you know, give with liberality. Praying for mercy. Lord, make me a merciful person. How about the gift of exhortation? Oh, Lord, would you just make me the kind of person that can gently exhort someone in their faith? The gift of faith. I mean, all these things that he's talking about, it's a different sense. And Paul clearly, in this letter to Rome that he writes later, he clearly spells these out as gifts. 
Well, that was verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts that come of the Spirit. But then in verse 5, Paul mentions the ministries. What about the ministries? Well, you got to go to another letter. So why don't we turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Ephesians was written after Romans. So he wrote to Corinth and talked about these spiritual things in 1 Corinthians 12. And then he would write to Rome and, and mention to Rome the, the gifts of the Spirit. And, and now he's going to write to Ephesus. And in writing to the church of Ephesus, so let's start in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So listen, understand the primary, the principal gift we have ever been given is Jesus. His gift, the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus Christ, salvation by Jesus Christ, that's the gift. That's the gift you want. It's the gift that keeps on giving. On into eternity. And then Paul says some other things we're not even going to deal with right now, but skip down to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as Teachers, Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So because of that, because of verse 12, I have always called these leadership gifts. Leadership gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. The five leader gifts that God has given, roles, ministries that God has given for the leading and the equipping and the developing and the nurturing and cultivating of the church. However... Based on just this week of reading through 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, these these three go-to passages, my thinking on this is shifting, and I believe that these five ministries are open for business for anyone who has received and is using the gifts that are spoken of in Romans 12. And the connection is very interesting. Now you may read these so-called leadership Ministries in verse 11 of Ephesians 4 and say, wait, I'm no apostle. And I'm not a prophet. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a pastor. And I'm not a teacher. Are you sure? Because neither was Brian. Our brother Brian. Brian Martin. Brian and Irene, you haven't forgotten them yet, have you? Okay, good, good. Just moved to Texas, down there in Austin, soaking up the sun. Missed the most glorious sunny summer we've had in Washington these many years. What about Brian? Well, he showed up in the barn. I remember the very first day he and Irene came. He just sat in the back and grinned from ear to ear. I, I loved it. I, I just He had this infectious smile. Still does, as far as I know. But he is in Texas, so maybe it's not quite the smile he had. I don't know. Anyway, he just big smile, and he sat in the back, and he was just so happy to be there. And I remember talking to him sometime after that. And he was saying that he and Irene had been very involved in a prior church, and but right now they just kind of, they needed some time. I was like, great, take all the time you want. We're just glad you're here. Next thing I know, Brian's doing a homeless ministry. Many of you went up to Bellingham many times with Brian and Irene doing the homeless ministry every uh, third Saturday, I believe it was, in the month. And now Brian's engaged in this in this ministry thing. And, and we started to notice, I started to notice, that around our fellowship, things were happening, and Brian was always in the middle of it. If there was service taking place, Brian tended to be there, just showing up. Why? Because, Romans chapter 12, Brian Martin has the gift of service. 
the spiritual gift of service. And it translated then into a ministry. Brian with the gift of service became Brian Martin, a pastor on staff here for two years. Because the gift, he just began to function it. He wasn't trying to be a pastor, didn't want to be a pastor. That wasn't on the radar. He was driving a truck for a propane company and happy to do it. And, and serving up in Bellingham in homeless ministry and serving anywhere there was need. And with that servant heart, he was functioning in the gift. God opened up the door to a ministry and Brian became a pastor. And so he was one of those five things. He was pastoring. My wife Cheryl has the gift of teaching. Now, maybe not like you think. For years and years, people would say, Cheryl, why don't you just do children's ministry? And she would just, you know. She saw what Leslie had to deal with. But she had this ability to teach. She's really good in teaching. And, and so I knew this. I saw this gift in her. And so she ended up with a ministry. The door opened to ministry. She is a teacher of our children first at home. And you can ask Cheryl. She never in a million years thought she would homeschool children. No way that was going to happen. But the gift of teaching translated into the ministry of teaching and she began to work with our kids at home and now she's teaching in classical conversations, which is classical Christian education. For uh, Homeschool is kind of a co-op for all these families and they gather on Fridays and go through and it's fantastic. By the way, if you're looking for education for your kids, talk to me about it. Classical conversations. It is Christian education in this country. (laughs) And it's marvelous. Well, Cheryl has a gift of teaching, but now she's become a teacher. And by the way, she also has gifts of service and exhortation and mercy. And she has become an evangelist, a prophet, and a pastor in our home. And she serves there. And I don't know what I would do without her. Now those of you say, wait a minute, she's a pastor. I didn't think a woman could be a pastor if if we're doing the shepherd, elder, pastor thing and you're now calling your wife a pastor. Is it going to be pastors Rick and Cheryl now? Hey, Cheryl is a pastor, perhaps not in formality, but certainly in function. I think maybe, you know, we need to understand that there is both. There is kind of a role, a title, a formality an office, if you will, given to the church. And there are specifics about that. We won't talk about tonight, but we will eventually. But there's also the function. And many of you ladies function in a shepherding role. You are pastors by definition, if not by title. And honestly, who needs titles around here anyway, right? They're unnecessary. Well... So you've got the gifts, Romans 12. You've got the ministries that are opened up by the gifts, Ephesians chapter 4. Rome leads to Ephesus. The gifts lead to the ministry, and that leads us all right back to Corinth. Go back there now. And the effects, the energma, the operation. Now... Don't get dogmatic about this. I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I just think, I lean toward the list in verses 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians 12 is primarily the effects and the operations of God. Now a little bit of giftedness sneaks in there. You know, and some ministry can be seen sneaking around in there as well. But it's the operation of God for the common good. Listen again to verse 7. One more thing to underscore. In verse 7, Paul says, To each one is given 
the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Meaning? Meaning we know the Spirit is present and operating gifts and ministries and effects when and where the Gospel is preached. When the glory goes to Jesus and when the body functions for the common good. You want to see a Spirit-filled church? It's a church that loves each other. It is a church that is unified. It is a church moving in the Spirit that is concerned for everyone in the body functioning for the common good and together. And again, the manifestation here, the revelation, the the eye-popping, eye-opening realization is of a person. God has given not the spiritual gifts for the common good, but the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The revelation of His Spirit. The gifts will follow. But if we emphasize the gifts, it's kind of not seeing the forest for the trees. We won't see the Spirit for the spirituals. Because we're too engaged in trying to figure out spiritual gifts. We're missing that the Holy Spirit of the living God is here. And that's what I want. That's where I want to be. Where God's Spirit is. How do we know that the Holy Spirit was present and operating in the early days of the Jerusalem church? How do we know? People probably would jump right out and say, well, miracles were happening. Listen, Acts 2.43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Koinonia. So you know the Spirit was at work. Why? Because they had all things in common. Over and above the miracles. Over and above, beyond the feeling of a sense of awe. Man, when a people love each other, when the common good is the primary thing in a church, the Spirit's there. And He is at work. Gifts, ministries, effects, these all come into play when we see and experience the manifestation of the Holy Spirit Himself. Verse 8. 4. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And to another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the affecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but we're going to come back to that list. Possibly on Sunday. Maybe next Wednesday. I haven't decided. We'll see what God wants to do with it. But there are a couple more things before we finish tonight I want you to understand. And we are laying groundwork for getting all of this. For Paul, the list... In verses 8, 9, and 10 are not the point. The Spirit is the point. The list is simply things that are taking place when the Spirit is present for the common good. But such is human self-centeredness that we dive right into the packages of spiritual gifts and their effects and we miss the personal point. It's like my children on Christmas morning invariably. When the packages are being opened and ripped and torn and they get to the center of whatever gift it was they wanted. And Cheryl will ask, who's that from? And they're like, I, I, I. 
They might as well say, I don't care who it's from, it's an Xbox. I mean, it could be from Rudolph. I wouldn't care. But for me as a parent, I want them to think about who. Well, actually, that's from Grandma and Grandpa in California. And yeah, you're writing them a thank you note. (laughs) Running through the gifts, going through the gifts, and missing who they come from, who they're about, who they're for, and who's at work in this. That's what we do sometimes in the church, racing ahead and missing the Spirit. Because we've got to get the gifts. And then there are other people who come along and like Christmas morning, they highlight certain effects over others. Hey, I got a basketball. Yeah, well, I got an Xbox. I got socks. I mean, you know, just like one is better than the other. I remember as a kid on Christmas, I would call my friends every Christmas afternoon. Why? To tell them what I got. And to compare with, and if they got something better, I quickly hung up and went on to the next friend and had to find someone who was poorer than I so that I could outdo them in the gifts. I'm a very gifted individual. I think if Paul was taking us through tonight's study and was preparing us for reading through these three chapters, he would say, that's the problem. That's the problem at Corinth. Missing the Spirit for all of the spirituals. Forgetting about the who because we're so interested in the what. Now, in this few verses, again that we're going to save, I want to give you a couple final issues here. There are some interesting categorizational ways of approaching this, and, and there are several. Depending on the commentary, you see it categorized in different ways. However, all of these things, verses 8, 9, and 10, Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, affecting of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues. All of these things listed come with a very clear organizational pattern that Paul shows us if if we could read it in Greek, which we can't, so often we miss this. Now, it's not a big deal, but it's interesting. There are two Greek words that are used here. Every time you see the word another, it's not the same word. There are two words used for another. And based on where these two words land in the list, we can see a structure. Let me see if I can explain this to you. The two words are alos and heteros. Hetero. We have the word hetero that we get from heteros. Heterosexual means two of a different kind. A man and a woman are in a heterosexual relationship because they're not the same. So heteros is another of a different kind. Alos is just another. You might look at it this way. Alos has to do with quantity. So, for example, he starts off and he says, verse 8, For one to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another, alos, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. So he's just saying one, and then there's, here's one more, and then here's one more. And it's just quantitative. Another, another, another. Heteros, if you see that, wait a minute, now he's talking about another that is different than what was talked about before. Got it? Follow it through. He gives us three aspects in here. Divine instruction, divine intervention, and finally divine inspiration. Instruction, intervention, inspiration. All of which are divine. But he begins, follow this through, I'll show you. Verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another, alos, so it's just another one, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. And that is divine instruction. So some receive divine wisdom. They they receive divine knowledge. It's divine instruction. That's part one. Part two. 
and to another, heteros. So to another of a different kind, now this is a different set, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, alos, so just another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. And to another, again, alos, the effecting of miracles. And to another, again, alos, prophecy. And to another, alos, the distinguishing of spirits. So in that second group, this is now divine intervention. Faith and healing and miracles and prophecy and discernment. Level one, divine instruction. Level two, divine intervention. And then level three, what we would call divine inspiration. He begins there in verse, where are we? Uh, Not even verse, halfway through verse 10. After the distinguishing of spirits, he says, and to another, heteros, so and to another of a different kind, kinds of tongues. And to another, allos, the interpretation of tongues. So tongues and interpretation of tongues is one set by itself. Faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment. In the middle, that's a set by itself. And then at the beginning, wisdom and knowledge are a set by themselves. So you see how it's, it's three different sets. There's this kind, and then there's another kind, which are these. And then there's another kind, a different kind, which are these. I just thought that was interesting. You probably are like... Uh, It's okay. It doesn't matter. But from there, now understand. People look at the end of the list to another various kinds of tongue and the interpretation of tongues and they say one of two things. They're in the last group, therefore they are less significant. Some will say that. Others will say, well, no, they're at the end of the list, therefore they're more significant. And sadly... Christians divide over tongues, which are in the list of spiritual operations for the symphony. They're not in the list to divide us. They're not shared by Paul here to be lightning rods of trouble for the church, as we have made it. They're just part, they're a piccolo, you know, or a cello. And rightly played and well played, as with all of the other instruments of the symphony, are part of the beautiful, common, good symphoneros, or symphonos, or whatever the word is, of the body, the symphony. Now, some come along and they look at the end of the list, they look at tongues, and they would just as soon strike it from the musical score. Man, just take it out of Scripture. I don't want know why it even has to be there. Or if they can't strike it out, they'll say, well, let's relegate it to the first century apostolic chamber orchestra. <laughs> Tongues were played well by the apostles, but, you know, people don't play that instrument anymore. Some put it there. Others, on the flip side, make divine utterances of speaking in tongues a requirement for every single player in the orchestra. And the only proof that someone has actually been born again and therefore can be part of the symphony, and that is a position I cannot support biblically. Because the Bible does not teach that everybody must speak in tongues. In fact, Paul says the opposite. He says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? Down in verse 30. So you're saying that tongues are for some and tongues are not for others? What are you saying, Rick? I'm not saying anything until we get there maybe next week. (laughs) All I'm saying right now is both extremes are wrong. It is wrong to relegate it to the first century or ignore it altogether and deny its power. And it is wrong to say that tongues are a requirement to prove that you're actually a believer. I think what's required is speaking by the Spirit of God. Jesus is Lord. And you are a believer. 
That's the standard. Not whether or not I have a prayer language. But listen, listen, get this. Tongues are highlighted here not because they're more important and not because they're less important, but because they have become the problem piece in the Corinthian Philharmonic. They are a problem. How do you know that, Rick? Because Paul deals with this over three chapters trying to correct the problem. And will tell those who are speaking in tongues, look man, just shut your pie hole. All you're doing is causing dissension and chaos in the worship and you're all doing it at once as if that is some proof of some great spirituality. Stop it, Paul says. And then he gives instruction on how to do it properly and in order. We'll get there. That's chapter 14. My friends, just because tongues are at the end of the list and just because they were a problem at Corinth doesn't make this particular effect or operation of the Spirit of Christ less significant or something to avoid any more than communion. What do you mean? Communion was a problem area too, wasn't it? They were having huge trouble with the Lord's table. And Paul dealt with it and corrected it and said, here's how you do it right. 1 Corinthians 11. Well, now we're in 12, 13, and 14. And he's going to say, it's not a problem if you play it correctly. If you're on the same musical score as the body for the common good, this can be a valuable instrument. Well, we'll talk about that. I want to walk through all of this with spiritual reason. And we will before we're done, especially in chapter 14. Let me end with this. Why has there been such a divide in the church if in fact the spiritual gifts, ministries, and effects are given by the Spirit for unity? Why? And it's a good question to ask. I think it's because it happens, problems, dissension, division happens any time We try to use spiritual things for fleshly fulfillment. And it's real easy to do. I can have the most awesome personal worship experience and walk out of here in discord with a brother or sister. And guess what? I have not been spiritual at all. I just played the game. I can be the most learned Bible scholar and and still be an ornery, miserly old cuss. And I had just played the game. I'm just setting out synthetic fruit. It's not legitimate. It's not actual. It's not real. If I am looking for flesh fulfillment in spirituality, I might as well be a pagan. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And it's just bad notes. If it's not for the common good. If it's not about love, it's drop symbols, it's it's out of tune orchestras. In what is divinely intended to be, again, a beautiful symphony. Verse 11, final verse, But the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. He passes out the instruments. 
He instructs the players. He makes the arrangements. He writes the compositions. And He, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is our conductor. He's the maestro. (laughs) He's the director. And that being so, His purpose is always the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this symphony we call the church. And that's what this is really, I believe, all about. The will of God in His Spirit determining who gets what gift, what ministry opens up, and how it all operates for the common good. If we're trying to be spiritual, we're going to feed the flesh. If we look to His Spirit, we will be spiritual. And then, as Peter writes, and we'll end here, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Rachel, you can make your way up here. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, really, I I feel like tonight has served for us to be an introduction into these chapters, into Paul's response to this spiritual question. And, Father, we don't want to be pagans. We're not in this for the the excitement and for the festivals and for the, the experiences that are all physical and fleshly and empty. No, Father, we are in this to know You. We fear You, Lord, with a holy fear because You are an awesome and mighty God, the only wise God. You deserve the honor and the glory forever and ever. And the fact that You chose to make Yourself knowable to us in Jesus Christ is beyond comprehension. And we want to know You. And and that's why we're here. And that's why we're studying the Word, Lord, is to know Jesus. To proclaim Jesus, Your name in this world. To glorify You. And And then to love each other because You first loved us. My prayer, Father, is that You will make a fresh outpouring of Your Spirit, the manifestation of Your Spirit over the Bridge Fellowship for the common good. So that we will function the way we are supposed to. That we will be concordant, harmonious. That we will be unto You a glorious symphony of of music to Your ears. Jesus, now, as we sing this song together, and as we conclude this evening with prayer together, we invite you, Holy Spirit, just to be exalted in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.